Dennis Metzler, and welcome to The Charge. Today, we're going to take a look at creation and new creation with Dr. Sean McDonough, professor of New Testament at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary and the author of Creation and New Creation, Understanding God's Creation Project. Dr. McDonough, thanks so much for being on the show. It's my pleasure. Thanks for asking me. So, uh, you couple creation and new creation, and you've got uh, your own paradigm, rather than going with the traditional creation, fall, and redemption, you've got a different one. So, please talk about that, and then along with that, uh, show us a bunch of biblical examples and parallels, especially in Genesis and the Pentateuch, but also throughout Scripture. Yeah, so and I think the first um, thing, whether we call it a paradigm or a model or whatever, is um, that we we can have a tendency to take our system or our model and almost use it to want to shunt the scripture aside to kind of replace the Bible with our distillation of it or what we think are the most important thing. So I always stress up front that um, the fourfold model I'm going to propose is just one way of looking at the scriptures. So it's it's not meant to displace creation, fall, redemption, which has a long and uh, valued history. It's just another way of trying to think about the, the biblical material, maybe, maybe in a way that gets us um, away from just a purely individualistic, spiritualistic perspective and, and brings the whole creation into, uh, into view. So that's the, the first thing I always want to say. In any case, the paradigm, as, as I've kind of cobbled it together through the years, would be uh, creation in the beginning and, and actually ongoing creation, which I'll talk about in a moment. Creation, then what I call counter-creation, which is the attempt of uh, humanity kind of under the sway of various spiritual forces to try to create their own world in defiance of God. And, um, of course, no one creates ex nihilo out of nothing except God himself. So you can say, well, counter-creation seems a little grandiose uh, for, uh, for a title for human efforts to build their own world. But that's sort of the point is right, that that it, it is absurd that we should try to create in defiance of God. And yet we 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 certainly do that. Rather than going in his way, we seek to think have things our way. So we call that counter-creation. And that term, along with the next one, decreation, I take from uh, the French thinker Jacques Ellul, um, counter-creation, and that uh, triggers what we can call decreation. Some Old Testament scholars will call it uncreation, where uh, God takes apart uh, the world, whether it's the kind of illusory world we have attempted to create, or even his own good handiwork, he allows it to in some ways, lapse back into chaos as a way of judging the counter-creation project of Satan and sinful humanity. The good news is, though, that decreation, the taking apart of things, is always with a view towards recreation or new creation. Um, so, so creation and, and new creation are really the, uh, the linchpins of the, the model Counter-creation and decreation are, are these strange things that happen as a result of uh, the fall. So I, I still have plenty of need to, to have that category there. Um, and so we, we focus on the, the origin and the goal, creation, 
giving uh, forth new creation. And, and it is worth thinking, too, about creation for a minute, that creation is not simply God making all things in the beginning, though he does that. However long it took, however, um, however he went about it, he creates the world such that it is what it is. Um, but Colin Gunton, another theologian, has a very helpful term, the creation project, meaning the creation was never meant to just stay where it was um, as of day seven. It was always meant to go forward to become more than it was. Um, so, so new creation, on the one hand, can refer to uh, kind of restoration out of the fall that God brings through the Messiah, even as he created through the Messiah. Um, but it can also refer to that that goal that it was always destined towards. And the reason that's very important is because humanity had a critical role in furthering God's creation project, right? Um, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. We're sort of meant to uh, labor underneath God, but meaningfully contribute to um, the uh, glorification and, and enhancement of the, of the creation. And so category of counter-creation is a tricky one because on the one hand there's a good human involvement in nurturing and bringing out the created potential of the world which is a part of the original creation project and which maintains its validity and goodness um, but, but anytime we twist that towards our own ends and, and kind of go on our own then we run the risk of engaging in in counter-creation um, so, so creation is not just in the beginning, though it is that. It's also the continued work of God and, and humanity towards the end times goal of, of bringing the creation to where it was meant to go. Um, and, and so any, any given cultural artifact, a, a film or a song or a, a piece of technology, has within it these two streams of uh, fulfilling God's creative intent through humanity, but also then turning that against God in the counter creation project, which, which makes it, you know, tricky to deal with things and why life is a very complex affair. So in terms of the Bible, the, the best thing is to just stick with those early chapters of Genesis. Excuse me. God creates in the beginning, makes the world what it is, sends humanity to develop that. Uh, but the counter creation it's sort of hinted at in the self-will of Adam and Cain, but uh, the story that illustrates it beyond uh, anything else, of course, is the Tower of Babel, um, where they literally try to make this great city in defiance of God on their own terms, etc., and God thwarts those designs. And that's particularly important because it's, it's no coincidence that the Tower of Babel is called what it is because it it's looking forward to the great uh, human city of the Old Testament, the dominant, most dominant oppressive regime, Babylon, which then, of course, is picked up in, in Revelation, as we will talk about later. So Babel is the sort of counter-creation, the fact that God intervenes in order to, to put that project to rest, we can see as a kind of decreation. But for decreation, even better, of course, is the story of, of Noah and the Flood. Um, the critical thing there is that everyone remembers that the rains uh, came down during the flood for the 40 days and 40 nights. What they often forget is that the waters come up as well. And what this is, is those waters, which in the beginning had been separated to create a good order and a space for life, particularly human life. 
now collapse through God's uh, God's will, collapse back into primordial chaos. And that is just the best example of uncreation or decreation that we have in the whole Bible, that the idolatry and sin of the generations before Noah uh, lead to the decreation. But, of course, when Noah leaves the ark, God says, be fruitful and multiply, that the, the waters recede, the dry land appears, just as they do in the creation narrative in Genesis 1. And so we have, even within that story, after the decreation triggered by the counter-creation, we have this image of new creation, which is why Peter can um, use a lovely phrase, the world that then was. Um, that there was this whole system, this whole humanity, this whole deal going on, and now it's plunged into the death waters of decreation only to rise again in, in new creation at the word of God. And um, that that's er, those early chapters of Genesis then set the table. And then, of course, the other most important event in Israel's history is the Exodus. And we find precisely the same thing. Israel uh, is, as Moses says here in the beginning of Exodus, being fruitful and multiplying, but that gets in the way of Pharaoh's counter-creation project. He wants things his way. And so rather than affirm the creative work which is being done in and through Israel, he wants to snuff it out. So God, to put it uh, bluntly, snuffs him out. And this, of course, happens there at the, the Red Sea or the, the Reed Sea, however we want to translate that. And what happens uh, at the Exodus? A strong wind, ruach, which can mean spirit, blows over the waters, and dry land appears, just again, in, uh, as in the beginning of the creation epic. And then Israel, this represents salvation, new creation, new life for Israel. They pass through. Pharaoh and his troops, though, are consumed by the decreative waters of judgment. Um, and so both in creation and exodus, we have these motifs of God creating, God uh, judging by decreation, in uh, response to human counter-creation, and that leads to this new life, this new way, this new creation. And so creation and exodus, it can be hard to disentangle them. I describe them almost like a double helix that goes through the whole Bible, um, so that whether they're using the image of exodus, they're using the image of creation, at the heart of it, there's always this uh, creation paradigm that I think is in play. So you have an interesting take on the gospel. Um, I'd like to hear more about your interpretation of that. You said something to the effect of, God takes our no place upon himself. Jesus occupies this no place because God is all in all. Yeah, so um, th there's lots of different ways we can illustrate uh, the, the gospel. And again, the, the critical thing is the reality of God's uh, restoration and new life that he gives uh, in Christ, and that, that is effective in the preaching of the word. It can be as, as simple as saying Jesus is Lord or Jesus died for your sins. That has this powerful recreative effect. Of course, it also has a decreative effect because it does away with what Paul calls our old man, our old person, right? And therefore, Paul and Colossians can say, put to death that which belongs to your old way of life. Uh, but then you want to bring into uh, into uh, expression, full expression, the new life that's welling up within you as a, God, a result of God's recreative work. So uh, it's Paul himself, of course, who says, if anyone is in 
Christ, there is a new creation. Um, so that new creation language isn't something we shove onto the text. It's it's right there at the heart of Paul's theology, or in Jesus's words, you must be uh, born again. Um, so the, the grace of God that appears in the gospel is a transforming grace, right? Uh, that, as one of my uh, colleagues, Pablo Polishek likes to talk about that God forms us in the beginning. We deform ourselves through sin, uh, but then God will transform us and, and reform us, reshape us through the gospel. And Augustine says um, says something very similar. So that the idea of forming or creating or making is is present through the whole process of uh, what we uh, understandably call our our salvation. And and one of the phrases I'll use all the time is that salvation is new creation. And therefore, the gospel is the good news, not just of forgiveness and restoration in our relationship with God, which is, of course, absolutely true and and, and critical to understand. Uh, But it's also this process of God giving us new life. Um, And one of the the ways I think we see this in the Gospels, first of all, is in the the miracles of Jesus, right? Um, People sometimes, and it, it just upsets me to no end when they think of the miracles as just sort of advertisements for the real truth of, of spiritual restoration, right? Now, now they are, they, they do point to the wholehearted restoration of uh, our, our lives with God. So again, I'm far from denying that, but I think the miracles are a sign of what Jesus has come to do, which is to restore the whole created order to its uh, original intent and indeed to to upgrade it in the resurrection to something that wasn't even there for Adam. Adam had a place to go. He had an achievement to um, to move towards, which, which of course, he, he failed to do. Christ does it instead. Um, but that, uh, again, the, the goodness of the creation is affirmed in the healing miracles, and it is a, an indication that what's on offer in the gospel is not just uh, spiritual life, you die and go to heaven. It's the complete restoration of the cosmos, including our physical bodies in resurrection, which is why we confess, uh, I believe, in the resurrection of the body, right? So, so I don't know what I'm putting forward here is, is meant to be uh, radical with respect either to the Bible or tradition. It's just that we've forgotten so much as the gospel has gotten thinner and thinner and thinner. Now, in terms of uh, Jesus taking uh, going to, to no place, maybe the best illustration of that is in the Gospel of Matthew, where uh, if you remember, when Jesus dies, uh, not only is the curtain of the temple torn in two, but uh, the, uh, the sun is darkened, there's an earthquake, the, the dead rise. These are all things that happen in Jewish uh, thinking at the end of the world. And so in, in Matthew's account, Jesus' death really is the end of the old world, and he, as it were, uh, swallows up all the futility and uh, the, the judgment, the, the nullification that's due to this um, idolatrous world, the, the counter-creation. He, as it were, Jesus takes it into himself, swallows it up, and then he merges as the first roots of, of new creation in the resurrection, um, which is also why getting back to that fourfold paradigm of creation, counter-creation, decreation, uh, recreation, I think that's one of the reasons Jesus goes after things like uh, 
the the old covenant as an old covenant. He affirms the the moral heart of it in the the love command and the um, all, all sorts of things he affirms about uh, about the law. But there is meant to be a new covenant to replace the old covenant. And though there's substantial continuity between the two, there is there is a newness there. And even good things like um, family ties, uh, he 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 says we have to transcend those because they can become corrupting and idolatrous. And so uh, they are part of that old world which has to be done away with, or at a minimum cleansed. Because then, the, the, of course, the wonderful irony of the gospel is that um, Jesus, having had to take steps away from his own family as well as calling his disciples to that um they're restored james jude his brothers uh become very important figures in the early church so um that that's just some kind of a a grab bag of of things from the uh the gospels that help illustrate i think the the usefulness of this uh paradigm we're talking about there seems to be a trend of coupling creation with new creation as opposed to dealing with creation at the beginning of the book and dealing with new creation with eschatology at the end of the book. So how would you trace the development of historical theology? How would you trace that development on this issue of creation and new creation? Well, as I mentioned, you know, I, I think there are, there certainly is an understandable tendency to think in terms of the individual soul as the object of God's concern, right? Um, I think the good news is you read thoroughly that even though the focal point is there, people are driven by Scripture as well as, I think, uh, just a reasonable assessment of things to recognize that um, there's, there's got to be more involved with that. And and here again, bodily resurrection, which is unified universally affirmed by everyone except the heretics. Um, bodily resurrection is the key because if you have a new body in an old world, that really doesn't add up, let alone if you have a new body in a cloudy heaven because it would just fall through the sky and, and the, the whole paradise would be would be well and truly lost at that point. So I think the um, if we trace through the theological tradition, the affirmation of bodily resurrection i think has always been an anchor to remind the church that we really do look forward to a new heavens a new earth as much as we have a tendency to forget that partly because right the attention of scriptures it's written to humans and so it focuses on on human lives and in this life in particular which is what we're preaching towards um, it is that relational restoration with god that's where things begin and that's what we have so much trouble with and so there's a lot of attention devoted to that. Also, of course, the scriptures regularly affirm that trees and ostriches and dogs and cats, they all do God's will. Um, So they don't need to be chastised or rebuked or um, undergo transformation. It's it's we humans who who screw screw everything up so badly. Um, So it's understandable why the attention of the church should focus on individuals and what we could call the sort of inner dimension of their lives. Um, but the scriptures are consistent in affirming the goodness of the creation, Old and New Testament alike. Um, so it's it's just a matter of uh, re- recovering that. And I think two of the key things I always talk about are Psalm 8 and Psalm 104, where the creation, the ongoing goodness of creation is affirmed. So in Psalm 8, 
um, the psalmist is almost speaking as if the fall had never happened. Now, enemies show up. So he, he does know the fall has happened. And yet the ongoing goodness of creation is, is affirmed. So, so the fall doesn't plunge the world into utter darkness, right? It, it obscures the, the glory of God. It, it corrupts human beings who are supposed to manage uh, the world. It does all sorts of horrible things, but it doesn't eradicate the essential goodness of, of the creation. And David can appreciate that. And likewise, in Psalm 104, we sort of move from God establishing the heavens and the earth to contemporary realities where God's recreative power or his ongoing creative power is, is evident in his provision for animals, his um, sending forth streams from the mountains and rain, uh, rain on the crops and all the, all the good things he continues to do. So those are two texts which... Christians tend to forget about because they they're focused understandably again on, on Genesis one through three, and they figure that's all the Bible says about creation, but that's, that's really far from being the case. So we just need to listen to the whole scripture um, and, and uh, we'll, we'll have a much fuller, richer uh, gospel. And of course, in, uh, just if I can make a contemporary application, uh, the fact that Western culture in particular is, has become so obsessively, consumed with the inner person and their their feelings um i think it contributes mightily to all the psychological distress we find because um we we become the center of the universe um and that's that's too much of a burden to bear until christians fall into that uh spiritualize it christianize it but it's the, the same basic problem so we need to read psalm 104 read uh psalm 8 read the end of job where humanity is is uh, sort of decentered, and we just are are able to breathe in the great, huge cosmos that God has created. So, if we look back at the church fathers, the scholastics, the reformers, uh, modern theologians, what is important for you uh, in terms of coming up with an understanding of creation and new creation? Yeah, I would say that the. Um, as I indicated, the, the tradition, all these, all these uh, great thinkers do affirm um, the fullness of, of new creation. They might not, you know, talk about it as much as I might like, and that could be my own my own issue. But but it's um, it's been a universal affirmation: Catholic, Protestant, Orthodox, um, first century, second century, and and the theologian Irenaeus is is I think uh, widely acknowledged as someone who really gets it right. Um, uh, he, Bishop of Lyon in, in France, and he just does a tremendous job of linking creation and new creation, maybe maybe better than anyone ever has. Uh, but right on through the Middle Ages and Reformation, uh, because the script, uh, you know, particularly in Protestantism, of course, but all good theologians have always wanted to be faithful to the scripture. And so they, they couldn't help but see this and occasionally at least uh, talk about Athanasius, um, whomever, uh, wherever we go, eventually you'll find them uh, seeing particularly the parallels between creation and, and new creation, uh, the decreation, the uh, counter creation. I, I think we get that. We could we could we could tease it out, but it's much easier to see the tradition affirming creation and new creation because again, that's it's just so much on the right on the surface of the scriptures. So, for modern theologians, who would you look to most? Who are your favorites? And what um, do they have to say that's interesting to you? Yeah, the, for modern theology, my favorites are the three Bs. So, and it, it's interesting. One's Catholic, one's 
Protestant ones, Orthodox, Bart, Bulgakov, and Baltasar. So it's Karl Bart, Swiss uh, theologian. Um, and, and again, he's controversial in some evangelical circles, but uh, I, I find him, whatever his personal failings might have been, um, more evangelical than most evangelicals and, and uh, very thoughtful on creation. Uh, Hans Urs von Balthasar was a, another Swiss uh, Catholic uh, theologian, friend of uh, Bart, and, and he does a really nice job with this as well. And uh, Sergius Bulgakov is a, a Russian Orthodox, fascinating guy. Um, he was a card-carrying communist, or Marxist at least, uh, before the time of the Russian Revolution. And then um, early 1900s, he was doing his PhD in agricultural economics and realized Marxism wasn't right. Uh, his Marxist friends, kind of getting ready for the revolution, weren't too happy with him. So he was exiled um, once the Russian Revolution took place. He was exiled uh, and spent most of his uh, adult life in, in France. Um, but he was just, and, and he had actually, interestingly, grown up in an Orthodox family but then left the faith um, during his Marxist years. And along with his disillusionment with, uh, with Marx and Lenin, uh, he became reacquainted with his Orthodox tradition and became just a, a marvelous theologian. And he's particularly good on issues of beauty and creation, um, the, the meaningfulness of the world God has created. So those are the the three uh, contemporary writers I've appreciated most. I, I should also mention Colin Gunton, whose uh, work on creation has been very formative for my own. All right. And how would you talk about God's relationship to creation? How is God involved in creation? Um, how is God related to? How he's distinct? Yeah. And there, I think, um, the, the first hundred pages of Bulgakov's Unfading Light are, are really good. And what he's saying there, which, again, is, I think, affirmed throughout the, the tradition one way or another, is that reality, as we encounter it, we, we have this paradox where God is, on the one hand, absolutely distant and distinct from what he has created. He is not the world. And yet he is absolutely intimately uh, acquainted with the world, uh, operative within it through through his his spirit, um, he knows us better than we know ourselves. He upholds the world by the word of his power, uh, and those two things, which when you look here it makes sense, when you look there it makes sense. It it becomes a little mind blowing when you try to accommodate both of them. But that is precisely where we need to live: is in that reality of the radical paradox of God's absolute otherness and his absolute involvement in the creation. What we, what we do is we tend to either choose one side or the other and, and probably more Protestants uh, who'd be watching this sort of thing will lean into the idea that God's completely separate from the world, which is a good thing to affirm, but then it, it almost leaves him excluded from his own creation. Um, and uh, we can effectively become secular in our living because we don't think God is, in fact, involved. We we go with the satanic delusion that this world is our world, counter-creation, um, rather than affirming that it is, was, is, remains, and will ever be God's world, uh, which, again, he upholds by the word of his power. 
Of course, there are others who, um, some Christians, or a lot of non-Christians, who lean into the idea that God is the world, that whatever is, is by definition good. So whatever I desire is by definition good. That's kind of what drives uh, modern American society in any case, it seems. Um, and that has its own perils, because then um, you don't have a, any creation. God hasn't created anything. He's just expressed himself. And, and we can really go back to um, Hegel, the, the German philosopher, for that whole line of uh, thinking. He, in turn, is indebted, as uh, Cyril O'Regan has argued, to um, a lot of Gnostic, Gnostic stuff. So uh, that, 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 that has its own dangers. Um, mm-hmm. the, you just can't lean into one or the other, nor can you kind of collapse him in the middle and say, well, God's a little bit different from the world, but sort of not. And, and he's sort of in the world, but not completely. This kind of mushy middle, that doesn't do it either. we got to throw ourselves to extremes and affirm both that God is absolutely other than the world and he's intimately involved with it. Um, and that goes for the personal dimension of life as well, right? That, that God is not me and I'm not God. And yet I am created in his image. He does uphold me. He does renew me. He does knit me to himself through Christ without erasing the distinction between us. So that, you know, we can call the God and the world problem is, is the critical theological uh, problem and, and, and screwing it up leads to all sort of mischief uh, down, down the road, ethically, theologically, logically, etc. In your book, you ask the question, why did God create? So in terms of freedom and necessity and whatever other issues come up, uh, tell us more about that. Yeah, so that's a question that, I don't know if it directly arises in the Bible as such, but it certainly uh, occupied theologians, partly because, um, you know, thoughtful Greek uh, pagan, quote-unquote, thinkers would would wonder about that sort of thing. Um, And here again, I think one of the the great contributions of Bart is, Karl Bart is to remind us that God's the one who loves in freedom. And so the uh, again, the tradition again and again and again will reinforce the uh, idea that God creates freely. He chooses to to do this now, and so the world's not a necessary place. We say technically it's not necessary, but contingent, right? It, it, things could be otherwise. Um, and, and there's a wonderful liberation that comes to us as we recognize that truth that God operates in His sovereign freedom and, and does what what He desires. Uh, such that our life is a gift. Um, the, the whole cosmos is just a wonderful uh, gift of his grace. Now, uh, there's, there's, there's a question that arises as to whether God's overflowing love compels him to create. And I think most theologians want to say, yeah, some, something like that must be true, but not in a way we might say that his hand is forced or that someone else is uh, compelling him to do this, right? That it, it, yes, it arises out of his loving and generous nature to create, uh, but people have always wanted to affirm that that nonetheless is done in absolute uh, freedom. And, and again, that can be a little abstract, but when you, when you sit with it for a while, it, it really is uh, of immense spiritual benefit to see that, God didn't have to make us. He didn't have to redeem us. He does it because of his overflowing love and generosity. And he does it in this glorious freedom that doesn't depend on anything or anyone to, to make him do it. And then there were a lot of models in the ancient world where just, you know, this is just the way it had to be. And, and even in 
a lot of contemporary secular accounts of the why the world the way it is, is just well it has to be this way and um and and it doesn't have to be this way which is also uh, a great hope because god is free to recreate to remake to reshape to bring things in new directions we can't even imagine uh because he is uh, sovereign and and free in all that he does and how do you see creation and new creation in terms of the concepts of time and eternity yeah so one of the one of the big uh questions that arises in the dialogue between early Christianity and Greek philosophy is, um, is, is the world eternal? And to Orthodox Christians, we think, well, no, no of course it isn't because God created in, in the beginning. Um, and, and that's true, but that there's actually a great deal of um, necessary faith involved in that because we act as if we could step outside of created being survey God and the world from our independent vantage point. Good luck figuring out how you get there. But right. We think we can look at God over here and then there's no world. And then, then he makes the world. Um, But in fact, because we're created creatures, we can never just by logical discursive reasoning, reason back to a time before there was time. Right. That can. And and Thomas Aquinas is one who really, I think, recognizes this quite brilliantly that it's necessarily uh, not a leap of faith, but a sort of a a gift of, of God to be able to recognize that the world, which is our boundary in one sense, right, as created beings, we, we can't get outside of things and become uncreated, absolute eternal, but we can however we do it through the spirit, recognize that God is strictly eternal and the world is contingent upon him and therefore has a, has a beginning. But we do that by faith, not by assuming we can reason our way back to the um, prior existing uncreated state of eternity. That, that must be, can only be by faith that we, we appropriate that truth. And how do you see God's relationship to space in terms of creation? The where does God create question? Is creation in God? Is God in creation? Right. And that's, you know, and, and, and when you stop and think about it, you say, well, it's not as if he could have made it a little to the left or, you know, uh, slightly farther down. That, that really doesn't, doesn't work. So we need a professional physicist to, to really drill into um, – the, the, the mischief we can get into if we uh, start posing the question question in the wrong way. But um, I think getting back to that fundamental point that God is not the world, he's completely other, and yet he's intimately involved with it. Um, I think as long as we don't hold too tightly or lean too much onto one metaphor, metaphor um, there, there's a sense in which the world is within God's being and yet distinct from it. Um, but because we said God is other than the world, it's equally true to say that in some sense, the creation is, is outside God, even if he's inside the creation. So, so I think what I'd want to say there is less, here's how we use that language in, of inside and, and outside, but more to, to get some self-awareness that when we use those kind of terms, those little prepositions, inside, outside, et cetera, 
um, that we, we do it um, very carefully, hold to it lightly, um, and that really we're just looking for different ways to speak to that fundamental truth that God is completely other and intimately involved with, with the world. So you take a look at our old friend Plato, and what does uh, he have to say? What does his philosophy have to say for the church's understanding of creation and new creation? Yeah, so Plato Plato's an interesting uh, chap, and he's become kind of a villain in the modern uh, academy. And uh, certainly from a Christian standpoint, he's, he's not perfect. But, uh, but I do think, A, he's a really good thinker. He's really sharp. And so um, I think a lot of his modern critics don't necessarily take the time to, to sit with um, his, his thinking, because if, if you do, he just helps you to think better. He's not simply putting forth a, a system of doctrine. He's really showing you how to, how to think about things as much as anything. Um, but one of his suppositions is that um, the world as we know it and talk about it can't carry its meaning just within itself. There's got to be this transcendent dimension to life and the world that uh, informs it, let's say. So um, take a a, a good example. When we say um, it's not right that you do whatever whatever action you you take. So it's not right that you do X. Well, Well, what's your standard? Right. If, if your standard just emerges in the ebb and flow of everyday life, you've, you've got no ground for saying anything about anything. There's got to be an enduring, overarching system of meaning, which he calls the world of ideas or the world of forms, that um, help us have a standard of, of, about anything, whether it's justice or truth or beauty or goodness or, or anything. And I think that's a fundamentally correct intuition and, and he thought through how that could be the case in, in lots of different ways and also you know informs how we think about the world when we look at a beautiful object um is that just the random concatenation of atoms uh that coughed up this this object or is there some meaning to the thing is there a purpose in its being created and so it's really to my mind not a surprise that plenty of christian thinkers so Plato is a way of helping them think through the beauty and goodness of the, of the creation as it comes from the hand of, of God or, or the mind of God might be even a more pertinent um, way, way of talking about it. Um, so, again, Plato's not perfect, but his basic uh, framework for understanding things, I think, can, can be an assistance to Christian thinkers, and, and therefore from Augustine, Aquinas, uh, et cetera, et cetera, you, you do see C.S. Lewis, a contemporary example. People have found Plato a helpful guide in thinking about the nature of the world. So you raise an interesting question, how does God create, by what process, and how the uh, theological and uh, scientific uh, worldviews or accounts work together or don't work together? Yeah, and that, of course, is a huge question. And for, for many Christians, that's sort of the only question they ask about uh, creation is, is when did he do it and how did he do it? How long did it take, et cetera? Um, 
And that's, of course, a, a whole uh, can of worms. Uh, remember a friend of mine telling me when uh, great preaching professor Haddon Robinson told him after he opened up a sermon by saying, well, we want to talk about this and this and this. And he said, don't chase more elephants out of the jungle than you can shoot. Um, so, so I don't want to overpromise here. But my, my basic idea would be that um, what the scripture is really trying to get at in Genesis is not so much a precise date for when God created, nor um, insight into exactly what God did, right, uh, other than speak, which gets us back to Plato because he's sort of infusing meaning into things by making beautiful objects, not just having things happen at, at, at random. Um, so the scriptures are urging the goodness of creation, the beauty of creation, the power and wisdom of God, which is displayed in creation. The fact that um, because God creates everything, he owns it, uh, including us, and therefore we are beholden to do his will. Um, that's the, the real critical critical thing that's in view. And, and even in Genesis, of course, remember God creates um, the Hebrew reads something like seeds, seeding seeds, right? So, so there is this notion that the creation has an energy put within it or a wisdom put within it, which becomes um, self unfolding, not in a bad way, right? But with a proper independence where um, part of God's creative act is to, to put this momentum, let's say within the creation. And so science, which is, in principle, a, a limited perspective on reality, but a useful, a very useful one. And that's sort of at the center of a lot of this debate around COVID and vaccines, et cetera, is, is do we trust science? And, be, and because some scientists go overboard on some things, then people foolishly uh, kind of uh, mistrust science about, about everything. But it's just, it's just a way of a narrow band of, uh, physical reality, thinking about cause and effect and describing what um, what happens in the world and then kind of deducing, thinking back to what what did happen. And um, so so they're really science and, and scripture are really looking at two different sorts of things. And really, it's it's a way, almost a, a case of trying to unpack what we're saying and just be self-aware that so. Yes, we can look at the beauty of the world. We can look at our own person and say, I just know God has created me. And that's absolutely true. And then we, we know scientific account of, let's stick with a human being. We know how people arise, you know, the sperm and the egg and the whole um, process of development, which we can watch in intimate detail now and have, have all sorts of information about. So, um, you can look at the process and say, that's what it means for God to create me. And there's a truth to that. Um, but the affirmation, the statement of faith, God made me is, is much more than simply a description of a process. Right. Um, so, so they're linked, but they're also distinct. And um, what, what's true of me as an individual, I can sense my meaningfulness I can sense uh, my worth. I can sense my sin. I can sense all these sort of things as someone who has been created by God. And I can also go look back and trace the, the biological process, which led to my 
coming into being and which will eventually in the not too distant future take me and you and all of us uh, away. So, um, and again, it just depends whether we, what we want to label creation. Yeah. Uh, in the one sense you could say, well, when God created people in the, in the beginning, that's all that we say counts as creation and everything else is just secondary effects. Um, but I, I don't know. I think Psalm 139, God knit me together in the womb, shows that active engagement in uh, God in, in fabricating each one of us. And so I, I'm happy to use the language of creation for that, even though I can also simultaneously look at material cause and effect, which uh, lead, lead to me and, and lead to, to you being what we are. So related to that is a perplexing question that, well, the notion that God created the world perfect and the only reason there's anything chaotic or destructive uh, in this world is because of the fall, human sin. And whether that's tornadoes or earthquakes or something more cosmic like asteroids hitting the Earth or galaxies colliding with each other, some would say more fundamentalist, literalist types, well, that's because of human sin. And I, I have a hard time going there. Um, certainly, our sin has messed up the world in so many ways. But uh, what's your take on that, especially in light of your, um, your four-part paradigm? Yeah. So um, I think, and, and it just so happens, I've been looking uh, pretty deeply into Job. 38 and 39, where God answers Job um, just the last few days, which is very helpful for answering this, because one of the distinctive contributions of that part of Job to our understanding of creation is that there's a, a wildness in creation, which is good, right? Um, and and it, I suppose in two ways. First of all, remember the Adam and Eve are called to fill the earth and subdue it. There's a job for them to do. There's what we could call a, a residual wildness, God in his goodness leaves within the world. So, all right, days one through six, it's good, it's good, it's very good, and it's still wild. Because, again, this is a creation project, and humanity is meant to bring the cosmos into conformity with the, the divine will for, for life and order and, and beauty. So um, even before the fall, there is this um, leftover wildness that people are meant to tame. And also I think Job... Job's pretty clear. Well, God's clear. He speaks to Job that uh, wildness is a good thing, too, even if it if, if it makes people small and, and threatened. That's not necessarily a bad thing um, because it's expressive of the abundant, just amazing, infinite glory of, of God, um, who's not a human being, but who's infinitely greater than human beings. Um, now, for our fundamentalist uh, friends, could we imagine a world, an unfallen world, where people are so in tune with God and with one another that they're able to, you know, train mosquitoes not to bite them or predict uh, when galaxies are going to cra crash and, and uh, find means to, to avoid that? Sure, that's, you know, it's, 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 it's funny to think about, but it's not impossible to, to imagine that sort of a world. So uh, the wildness of the world is a good thing, but our ability to manage it as we might have managed it had we not estranged ourselves from God, that's, uh, that's another question. And just as a follow-up to that, there's a, 
a question that a lot of people are discussing nowadays is, you know, could there be death before the fall, human, human death? Um, and, and I don't have a problem with that, partly because not only is Genesis 3 focused on the kind of spiritual death of, of Adam and Eve, their estrangement from, from God, but um, we're also talking about death as it's experienced by actual human beings in the world we know, right? So, yeah, there could be all sorts of creatures coming and going, getting formed and dissolving, um, but we don't know anything about them, right? What we know about are people like ourselves who experience death as this grievous um, miscarriage of uh, rightness, that this isn't the way it's supposed to be. And uh, so that's what's in view, I think, in those early chapters of, of Genesis is explaining uh, the world as, as it is. Um, so that's kind of a... So do you suppose in the new creation we won't have to worry about meteorites or tornadoes or maybe they'll be around but we'll be indestructible and they'll just be like wild roller coaster rides for us? Yeah, I mean, I think yeah, I think the the latter is more more likely and again, we can't know everything, but I always like to say the new heavens and new earth is more not less. And I th- I think it's uh, one of the great disservices preachers and teachers can do is by Kind of making people think that it's church all the time, and and I love church. I love worshiping God, and that's absolutely at the center of what we're doing. But but is is it any wonder people aren't compelled by our message if we think that completing the creation project means stripping everything away that makes the world interesting? And so it's more the uh, the prophets the the glory of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. It's the flooding of the good world with God's presence, which is what we really need to to live and flourish and and our appropriate response of worship. But it's not the eradication of material reality, which again supposes that we're somehow independent, eternal beings who just need to have these outer things stripped away for our true selves to emerge. When the fact remains, we are and will always be created beings. However, intimately we're joined with God. We're not God, even though we're upheld by his grace and his glory. And so to wish the created world away is ultimately to wish ourselves away. Um, And if we don't want to do that, and if we're orthodox and believe in the resurrection of the body, as I indicated before, then then that uh, speaks to a, total cosmic renewal. And uh, and again, based on Job, we would anticipate that wildness would be a part of, um, a part of that uh, experience. And yeah, indestructible is an interesting question, whether I choose that, that exact word, uh, but they wouldn't be a threat to us. That, that doesn't necessarily mean we would have it under our dominion necessarily. We'll see. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah, I'd be hesitant to take my chance with uh, an asteroid if, unless mm-hmm. I knew I was indestructible. Mm-hmm. So in your chapter on uh, the human role in new creation, you raised some interesting topics um, from Adam to Babylon to theosis, the resurrection. Say more about that. So as I indicated, when God creates the world in the beginning, he um, gives humanity a crucial role in that which within five minutes, uh, so to speak, it, it, it just goes 
downhill. And so, as I've said, unfolding human history becomes um, this constant tension between developing in a proper way the creative potentialities of the world and on the bad side, lurching them over, kind of hijacking God's creation project for our own our own glory. And, and in the book of Revelation in particular, though it's drawing heavily on the Old Testament, that's symbolized in Babylon and, and with Augustine, of course, it's called the city of man uh, in contrast to the, the city of God. Um, uh, I won't get into all the details of Revelation uh, right at this point till, till later, but suffice it to say that um, on the one hand, Babylon can be seen as sort of collecting stolen goods from God's good world, right? Um, and on the other hand, you can see it as a kind of an illusion, a counterfeit city. And um, the counterfeit consists in naming as its own what properly belongs uh, to God. But it's a credible counterfeit, right? Because we do have this creative potential. God uh, does want us to fill out and, and expand upon the uh, the given realities of, of the natural world. So um, it's a compelling illusion. And that, again, I think is critical for making sense of the modern world, which is, is increasingly good at both uh, developing resources to make a comfortable environment and also, of course, through video games and film and entertainment of all sorts, creating that uh, f- false world, the virtual world, um, and, and subtly displacing God's good, good creation with this, this fake, fake uh, produced by, by human beings. So um, this is where I see the creation, proper creation theology is, is helping us navigate one of the trickiest things about the modern world, which is appreciating technological progress, but also being appropriately wary of it and not being surprised when technology, which could be used for good and which is expressive of human God-given creativity goes uh, horribly wrong. And um, you and I are old enough to, to, to remember when the internet was just first coming on and how so many people were like, oh, it's just going to bring people together and it's going to be a new age for humanity and peace and love and understanding. And it didn't exactly work out that way if you've ever looked at <laughs> Twitter or uh, virtually anything on the internet. And so it's uh, the same sad story of Babel just uh, happening again and again and again. What's meant to unify us becomes a, a source of um, horrible division. So can you define theosis and talk about how that fits in? So we're developing the creation, except we develop into a counter-creation. God has to decreate and then we recreate. So it's, it's all um, kind of jumbled up. Um, but, but the goal is to be joined with God. The the goal is to experience his glory, to see him face to face, right? Now in the Eastern tradition, particularly, and some theologians in the West, they want to talk about, uh, theosis, which is, could also be translated, uh, deification. And, you know, gosh, that sounds like the, the Mormons. And, and I, I'm not, I don't know that I love the term. But I want to be charitable to my uh, 
you know, Eastern um, friends and, and recognize that the word theosis or deification can refer to lots of different things. Um, one, it just be moral likeness to God, which we, we would all think, yeah, of course I want to be like God in that sense. And then it can also be a way of describing our union with Christ, our intimate personal relationship with him, that there's not a distance between us, but we um, not only are uh, connected with him, which is always true because he upholds us by his word, but we, we sense that connection. And, and that I think is something we can again all agree on. Can you take it too far to the point where you're sort of merging with the being of God? Yeah, you got to at least be really careful how you talk about that. So um, I don't find theosis the most helpful term, right? But I think I can certainly agree with much of the reality towards which Eastern Christians in particular are pointing to when they use that word. And and even when they go overboard, I might want to, before just condemning, try to talk and, and figure out what, what exactly they, they are trying to say, because um, hopefully I'd be able to find some agreement there as well. But but again, I don't want to think of somehow becoming God in the strict sense. That's uh, it's going kind of far for me. But then, how do you tie that in with new creation? So um, the the goal of new creation is that transparency of human being to to, to God, right? That uh, th- there won't be any need in Revelation for the sun or, or the moon to shine, though I suspect they'll still be there, but um, will be illuminated, irradiated by God's presence and um we we think about what what makes life difficult here is not simply physical suffering though that's a part of it it's estrangement both between ourselves and other humans and more pointedly our sense of uh, absence from god's presence which is why uh worship is so important because it's that time when we connect together in the presence of, of God. And while we don't always feel um, the same things when we gather, uh, I, I do hope we experience in, in some meaningful way, a taste of that presence of God. But the, the goal of new creation is, and, and is, is that experience of the fullness of our relationship with God when we see him face to face. And and part of the need for resurrection, I think, is to have bodies that can endure the outpouring of his glorious presence. And that's, again, part of the message of the book of Revelation. So there's the issue of continuity between the present creation and the new heavens and new earth. And part of the perplexity over figuring that out is what 2 Peter chapter 3 has to say. I mean, it it looked like at face value, God is just wiping out the whole universe. So uh, I know some people have, have different ways of interpreting that. I'm not sure if you're familiar with uh, Jonathan Moo and uh, Robert White, what they have to say, but they they downplay the destructive part of that. But I just wanted to get your take on that. Uh, I know Jonathan well. He's a, he's a wonderful scholar and uh, I think his work on second Peter uh, is is really uh, tremendous and, and I, I endorse it so I do think what's primarily in view in uh, first second Peter is uh, this radical cleansing of uh, of the world um, 
But I, I think the critical thing, whether it's Second Peter or Revelation, is to recognize there's both continuity and discontinuity, right? There are there is a sense in which the world to come is a renewal of this world, and there's a sense in which it's so so new and such an upgrade that uh, there's there's a gap between the two the two of them, and so. We could say Second uh, Peter is speaking more to the radical disjunction of the old and the newness of the new, uh, but elsewhere it'll be the fact that the good world of God has finally reached its goal. Um, so it's it's sort of gone gone up to its ultimate trajectory. And again, again, I think the best way to think about it is with the the resurrection body, and of course we know one person who is well and truly resurrected into eternal life, which is Jesus, and he is both recognizable and not recognizable. He is who he was, and he is uh, such a radically upgraded version of himself that he can walk through walls and not be recognized by Mary Magdalene in the garden and, and all the rest of it. And so if there's no connection between the resurrection body or the cosmos as a whole and what went before, then God's creation project really could be seen as a waste of time, right? Um, on the other hand, if there's no radical difference, then we're just left in this cycle of formation and dissolution, and it just goes on on forever. And so we sense within ourselves a need for this radical upgrade, and yet we want to be resurrected as ourselves, not as somebody else. Um, Paul, I think, deals with this very nicely uh, if we compare 1 Corinthians um, 5 and 6 uh and and uh, Second Corinthians um, three three and four, where in, in First Corinthians he emphasizes the continuity of the now body and the new body. It's, it's funny he says you, you shouldn't consort with prostitutes because God raised the Lord and He will raise us up also. Right. So what we do in our present body matters eternally, and so that mm-hmm. that connection between the now body and the new body is really strong in in First Corinthians. Second Corinthians he emphasizes. The, the radical difference between who we are now in this tent that's frail and fraying and um, we, we, we wish we could get away with it and be with the Lord. Um, and, and so he stresses there the, the discontinuity. And it's just the case. I don't have four hands, so I can't illustrate it, but both are true at once. This is true. There's a gap and there's also connection. So there's continuity, discontinuity for the resurrection body of the individual and equally for the cosmos as a whole. All right. And uh, in your chapter on beauty, you uh, quote Sergei Bulgakov saying, beauty is an objective principle in the world. And you talk more about the nature of beauty and beauty in its relation to the cross in relation to salvation. What else could you say about that? Yeah. So I think beauty is, again, a very underappreciated um, thing in in uh, Lots of lots of theology. Uh, Balthasar and Bulgakov are really really good at it. Um, Bart, interestingly, is he's a little leery of the word, not not because he doesn't appreciate beautiful things or uh, appreciate what's going on, but because he he knows that in the German theological tradition, just kind of the immediate sense of aesthetics and music and human achievement. Um, serves to almost crowd out God. It, it's, he doesn't use the term, but it's, it becomes sort of our type of the counter-creation. If I just have beautiful music and beautiful art, then that's all I need. So Bart 
you know, wants to, to get mm-hmm. away from that, but he can't help but acknowledge that uh, there are beautiful things in the world. He's got a lovely passage on Mozart and what his music does and, and ultimately sees that uh, God's beauty is his glory and that he, he's finally driven to recognize with his friend Balthasar that, that the beauty in the world does really uh, meaningfully uh, speak to, to God's uh, glory. Bulgakov uh, and, and Balthasar are much more out there with their own views. Um, and there's, again, there's this kind of Platonist, Platonish way of, of looking at things that says that God's ideas for things, and this is true especially for Bulgakov, God's ideas for things are realized in, in reality, and so those those objects, those beautiful things, become a gateway to understanding his mind, right? Because he thought, in the crudest terms, he thought them up and made them, and therefore when you look at them, you see into his, um, his, his thoughts, um, of which there's nothing more beautiful, right? And so his glory is displayed in and through what is created, which is really what Paul is getting at in uh, Romans 1, right? He doesn't, uh, I don't know that he uses the term beauty, but I think in effect, and, and if we're looking for a, a word that is in the Bible all the time, glory really is um, is the one we light upon because glory isn't just power or, or shininess, right? It's, it's the, 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 yeah, the beauty of the form of what God has created, whether it's a flower or a human being or uh, the, the starry sky, whatever it is, um, that that form is itself uh, an emblem of, of God's, um, not just his power, not, not just his wisdom, but his, 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 his beauty. There really isn't uh, any word you can substitute for it, which is why in traditional thinking, there are the so-called transcendentals, uh, truth, goodness, and, and beauty. And, and, and again, that doesn't uh, necessarily make a, a foolproof system that displaces Scripture, but I find it a very helpful way of thinking that the, the true is beautiful and good, and the good is beautiful and true, and uh, whatever the last <laughs> get, get mixed up there. But they're all this kind of trinity of uh, transcendentals. Um, of which beauty is a really important one, um, that it's not just moral goodness, it's not just true as, as in it, it matches up with the facts, that there's this radiance to the things that God God makes. Um, and, and so uh, what Bulgakov goes on to say is works of art help point us toward that enduring beauty and glory of God. Um, and, I, and I think that's uh, that's true. So we would do well as evangelicals to appreciate more the beauty of the world and the beauty of things created by humans that open our eyes to that divine glory slash divine beauty. But how do you tie in beauty with the cross? Well, and that's where we, we deal with paradox, right? Is, is the cross is objectively from the outside, um, the ugliest thing that's ever happened, right? It's not only deforming of, of Jesus and the physical suffering, which can, can move us, uh, and right and rightly so. It's just the injustice of it all that it's completely wrong and, and the opposite of beauty. But the paradox is, uh, and John in John twelve captures this better than anybody. Um, the paradox is because this is the expression of the ultimate or the ultimate expression of divine love. It's 
it's supremely beautiful. And that's why the word of the cross, as Paul says, is what's effective at saving, because in it, the, the glory of the self-giving, absolutely loving God is most fully revealed. And precisely because in his suffering, he has to be deformed for our sake and, and lose himself to gain us. It's there that the beauty of God is paradoxically most uh, clearly displayed. So that's, that's yeah, the, the cross um, introduces a whole re-understanding of uh, beauty. But again, without, without taking away from the glory of the world God has created, it's Jesus himself who told us, look at the lilies of the field. Solomon, all his splendor, wasn't clothed, clothed as one of those. That's not a denigration of the created order. It's the paradoxical revelation of God's beauty and glory in the midst of human ugliness and, and wickedness. Uh, where it shines shines the brightest precisely because of the darkness. It doesn't justify the darkness. It just becomes a setting for the, the glory of the light. And finally, uh, could you finish up with your thoughts, observations on the new creation imagery in Isaiah and especially in Revelation chapters 21 and 22? Yeah, so um, Isaiah 40 to 66 is really where most of the New Testament gets most of its theology. I mean, Genesis, Exodus is a lot of places, but it sort of all really comes to a head in those wonderful chapters in the latter half of Isaiah. And uh, again, what we just talked about, the beauty uh, here, Isaiah uses the imagery not only of uh, just a new heavens and new earth, but also of uh, this beautiful city that's adorned with precious stones of all sorts, right? And this is, again, just a picture that can't capture but can point us towards the coming beauty of God's eternal city, the new Jerusalem. And that's fleshed out a little more, of course, in the latter chapters of Revelation, along with um, beautiful imagery from uh, from Eden, right, where they have the river of life and the, tr- the, the tree of life. Um, but it's not just a return to the garden, it's, it's the garden city, right, so that the work of the apostles and the prophets in proclaiming uh, the word is affirmed in, in this new Jerusalem. And, and Richard Bauckham's given a very nice, helpful uh, three-part way of understanding the new Jerusalem that on one hand it represents the place of, of God, which is pretty obvious, streets of gold, the pearly gates, all the rest of it. Um, but when you look closely, it's founded on the apostles and prophets. It's called the bride of the lamb. And so it represents not only the place of, of God, but the people of God. And then, of course, what makes it the paradise it is, is because it's filled with the presence of God. So place, people, presence, you can put them in any order you like, but that it's good to finish with the presence because that's what makes it um, paradise is the fact that God is completely there in a way he wasn't even in the garden or he, he couldn't be in the garden because of uh, human sin and then the exile of Adam and Eve. But here he is well and truly pleasant. And again, what, what I find so compelling about those images, especially the, uh, the river of life and the tree of life with the leaves for the healing of the nations, is God, while he is completely present, still has, it would appear, that created world as, uh, as a mediator of his, his blessings, which is why, again, I say heaven is more, not less than the, the current order of uh, things. And just um, one point I had left a little hanging last time. The New Jerusalem is contrasted, and this is really what Revelation is all about. If you compare um, chapter 17 of Revelation, the portrait of Babylon, 
in uh, verses one and following with uh, the vision of the new Jerusalem in 21.9, John uses the exact same formula, pretty almost exact same formula to introduce those two passages. It's almost like he wants to put them up on a split screen, um, which we can do with with our software or films. You get the the two screens at once. Uh, It says, one of the seven angels who had the seven uh, bowls came to me and said, come, I will show you. He repeats that almost word for word in Revelation 21. And we see a woman, on the one hand, a prostitute, on the other hand, a chaste bride. The prostitute has gold and uh, jewels and all these uh, wonderful things. And so does the New Jerusalem. But one's the counterfeit and one's the reality. And the whole question of Revelation is, are you going to be seduced by the counterfeit? Are you going to become an idolater and give up on God and just embrace the way of the world as exhibited by Rome in John's day, Babylon in the times of the prophets, Babel back in the, the old, old, deep, deep time of, uh, of Genesis, or are you going to embrace the reality of God's eternal city, which is both a gift that comes down from him um, out of heaven as a gift uh, of his sovereignty, but also is the result of the progress of God's people through, uh, through time. It's, it's both at once. It, um, so, so tale of two cities, right? Steal it from Dickens, but that's what revelation is about. Um, the, the counter creation of Babylon with all its seductive, uh, illusions and the real recreation, the goal of God's uh, garden in the beginning, the new Jerusalem. That's so encouraging. All righty. Well, I'm Dennis Metzler, and you've been watching The Charge. Today, we've been with Dr. Sean McDonough, professor of New Testament from Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary. Dr. McDonough, thanks so much for joining us. No, no worries. Thanks for, for having me and, and uh, listening to me blather on for that long. Yeah, cheers. Cheers.